Hey everybody, this is Pastor David with We Are Church. I just want to thank you for taking the time to tune into this podcast. Here at We Are Church, our mission is to be a place where people come to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. One of the ways we do that is through the reading and the teaching of the Word of God. So I just pray that this message would challenge you to take your faith to the next level and you would find freedom in every area that you need. God bless you and enjoy the message. Thank you again, Father, for this day. God, I just pray again that you give us ears to, uh, to hear God and eyes to see as we get into your word tonight. God, we believe that you have something to say to each and every one of us, and we're just thankful, Father, just to be here tonight. Bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our fourth week into the I Am series. For anybody who hasn't been here, we've been going through the Gospel of John and, and uh, looking at the I Am statements that Jesus has been saying. And so far, we've studied how uh, Jesus had said that he is the Messiah. He said, I am the Messiah. And he came to save us from our sin, and not just to save us from the penalty of our sin, but to literally save us from our sin. The second week we went over, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And we talked about how he came to satisfy spiritual hunger. And that a lot of us have been walking around trying to fill a void in our life and consume the things of this world, not knowing that what we're really hungry for is him. We talked about how he conquered spiritual death and how he offers eternal life to all. And in the third week, last week, we went over how he said that he is the light of the world. And we went all the way back to Genesis when God spoke creation into existence and how he was literally saying that he was what creation was spoken, that, that what creation followed and how he brings structure and order to our life. and He brings life to our chaos and that through his light, we eliminate the darkness in our lives. So this week, we're going to discover what Jesus meant when he says, I am the gate for the sheep. So we'll be coming out of the Gospel of John in chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter, chapter 9, my bad, and we'll start with verses 35 through 41. But before we get there, I kind of want to break down where we're at, because in, in order to really understand what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am the gate for the sheep, we need to understand in context, where was Jesus at, what was going on, what led him to say this kind of statement, because a lot of times we'll just jump into the Bible and we'll get to a page and we'll read something, but we won't fully grasp or understand what he's trying to say because we have to read the Bible in context. Location, where was he at, what kind of people were around him, what events led up to him being where he's at, what region is he in, you know, all of these different things. We have to look in context to what led Jesus to say, I am the gate for the sheep. So if we start in the beginning of John, we have Jesus and his disciples, and they, they're, uh, they're walking along, and they come, they come across this man who had been blind since, since birth. And his disciples ask him, they say, was this man blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, he, he wasn't blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. He was blind so that, so that God could get the glory for what's about to happen. And so Jesus bends down, and he spits into the ground and makes mud with his saliva, and he rubs it over the man's eyes. At first, I was like, man, that's, that's nasty. I don't know about nobody coming up, rubbing no spit over my eyes. But I started thinking about it, that he literally had the DNA of Jesus rubbed over his eyes. And Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud off, and the man sees for the first time in his life. So 
as soon as this man is healed, like, everybody starts freaking out. They're like, man, this dude's been blind since birth, but, you know, this dude, Jesus, just opened his eyes. So the Pharisees, they get mad because they're like, man, it's the Sabbath day. He shouldn't be healing nobody on the Sabbath. So they start freaking out, and they call this man in, and they start to question him about who it was that healed him and what exactly happened. And so they called his parents in because they wanted to verify through his parents that he had actually been blind his whole life because they couldn't really understand the the, the fullness of this miracle that they just that they're witnessing. So they call the parents in and the parents are like, man, yeah, he's been born. He's been blind since birth. And so the parents, they kind of get to arguing and they kick the, the Pharisees, kick the parents out and they call the man in for the second time. And we'll we'll, we'll read that right there. Uh, John chapter nine, verse 24 through 25 says for the second time, they call in the man who had been blind. And told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. In other words, he's telling him, say what you want to say, but the evidence of his power and his healing is undeniable. So the man continues in this conversation with the Pharisees and they're arguing back and forth. And he starts to really get get to arguing with them about how there's no way that Jesus didn't come from God. And he starts to tell the Pharisees, he's like, man, there's no way never in in the history of of creation has has anybody been able to open the eyes of a blind man. Yet you're telling me that this man didn't come from God. So the, the Pharisees get angry at him and they kick him out of the synagogue. And then Jesus goes to find this man and we'll pick up there in verse 35. It says, when Jesus heard what happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. We're going to break that down a little bit. Verses 35 through 38. So Jesus asked the man if he believed in the Son of Man. Basically, do you believe in the Messiah? His response is, I want to believe in him. Who is he? And Jesus says, you have seen him and he is speaking to you. Look at his response. He says, yes, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. The beautiful part about that is Jesus didn't say, do you believe in the Messiah? I I am the Messiah and didn't tell him, worship me. He didn't tell this man. He didn't have to tell this man to worship him. His natural response after staring in the face of the Savior of the world was to worship him. And that's how it is with us. That's how it's supposed to be, that we shouldn't have to be forced to worship God. But once we experience and actually have a revelation of who God is and how powerful he is and how much love he has for us, our natural response should be to worship him. Verse 40, he said, the Pharisees get offended and ask, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus tells them, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. In other words, because you see through the lens of your legalistic traditions and not the Father's heart, you're actually blind and the truth is not in you. A couple of points I have here. There's danger in thinking that you have arrived to a higher level of righteousness than those, than those around you. 
We measure ourselves on the scales of his grace, not the scales of our own righteousness. That if we get to a place where we're actually measuring our righteousness by the failures and the flaws of other people, we're no better than the Pharisees. Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that if you say that you don't sin, that you're a liar and the truth ain't in you. So when we start to look at other people and we say, God, at least I'm not as bad off as them. That's a pharisaical spirit that's controlling us. We measure ourselves on the scales of his grace, not the scales of our own righteousness. The Bible tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the face of God. And that word filthy, when it says filthy rags, it's literally talking about rags that were used for a menstrual period for women back in the day. It was considered the most filthiest thing that could ever be around a man. That that's what our righteousness, our own works and our own righteousness is like to him. But when we know that we're broken and we accept the, the blood of Jesus over our life, it's his righteousness that he sees and not ours. Romans 3, 23 through 24 says, for everyone in sin, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace, his undeserved, his unmerited favor freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We all sin, but it's God in his grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor that he gives us that makes us right in his sight. Your works are not what pleases God. What pleases God is when we stare into the lens of his grace. It is then that we are made right in his sight. It's when we know, when we look into the lens of his grace and his mercy that we're actually made right in his sight. That when we know that, God, I don't deserve to have what you've given me. God, that I'm broken, that I'm a wretched man, that without you I would never ever be become anything or amount to anything. It's when we actually look at him knowing how broken that we are that we're actually made right in his sight. Started thinking about that, man. Because I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of looking at other people and thinking, man, I got it more together than them. You know what I'm saying? I'm guilty at looking at, at other people post on Facebook because I think that they're supposed to be Christians and they're not supposed to have these kind of flaws or these kind of struggles. And I think that everybody's supposed to have it all together. And if I'm only measuring myself by them and I'm constantly looking at them, I'm not self-examining. I'm not, I'm not examining myself. When I went through Davidson County Drug Court, they used to have this thing called a pull-up system. They said, you got to hold your brother accountable. Basically, you would have to write people up in the program, and they would tell you, if you don't hold your brother accountable, you're letting your brother die. Now, I believe in accountability, right? But what it would do is it would create this pull-up war where everybody would be focused on everybody else, and in, 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 in the same time, you would lose the focus of actually focusing on yourself and examining yourself and saying, man, what do I need to work on? Right? I mean, how many of us know we still got room to grow with God? We know we still, like I said, man, this is a train wreck of a church. Like people walking, like, man, how many, how many people been Christians for more than five years, 10 years, 15 years, right? But, but we never stop growing. We never stop having something that we need to work on or allow God to continue to work in our lives. It's when we think that we have arrived, that we're in the most dangerous place that we could ever be. 
Jesus continues to address the Pharisees about how their spiritual blindness disqualifies them from being true shepherds. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, see, a lot of us, we got this idea of Jesus being just this, this timid, you know, this soft person, like the Lamb of God, you know, like, but, but we forget that he, was, that he was fierce, that he was ruthless, that, that when it came to something that was contrary to the heart of God, that he didn't hold back and he spent his whole ministry being contradicted by the, by the, by the Pharisees and constantly having to, to show them that they were actually blind. And so he's telling them they're supposed to be the shepherd of God's people. They're supposed to be the, the shepherd of the flock. But Jesus goes on and he continues to address the matter about how their spiritual blindness disqualifies them from being true, dis- true shepherds. Uh, so we'll start in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, and we'll start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. There's a lot just in these first five verses that I really want to, that I could talk about, but we're just going to talk about a few of them because we'll cover the rest over the next five verses. But just a few things he's saying to the Pharisees. In verse 1, Jesus says, Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. What he's saying, anyone who's claiming to be a shepherd but doesn't enter through the gate, being Jesus, is actually a thief and has intention to rob God's children. It's impossible to have the heart of a true shepherd without having the heart of Jesus. And so we had these people, the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the teachers, the rabbis, the people who, who were entrusted to take care of God's sheep and his children. But instead of leading them closer to God's heart, they put burdens on them that they themselves couldn't carry. And so Jesus is, 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 is telling them time and time again that they're not true shepherds. Verse 5 says, they won't follow a stranger, they'll run from him because they don't know his voice couple of points. The true children of God won't follow a shepherd who leads with hate. They will run from the legalistic system. When he's saying they won't follow a stranger, they'll run from him because they don't know his voice. There's a people who won't put up with that legalistic system of somebody trying to put layers on top of people that God is trying to set free. That there's not a man that is supposed to stand before you in your relationship with God. And ever since the beginning of the church, there's been somebody who has been trying to put somebody else in front of God and put a gap and put something that hinders you from having a right relationship with God. Even in the Roman, Roman Catholic Church, they would literally chain the Bible to the pulpit. They would chain the Bible to the pulpit and nobody was allowed to have the word of God. And since the beginning of the church, people have always, since the beginning of creation when there was ever anything there was always somebody trying to put something in between you and your relationship with God there's a reason why a lot of us have ran from that legalistic system where we walk into a place and we can't even feel 
at home where we don't feel relationship, we don't feel love. And there's been people our whole lives who have said, man, you, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that, but they would never give you the tools necessary for you to overcome the things that you were struggling with or they were never willing to grab your hand and walk beside you and say, I will help you get through this if this is what you really want to do. Because I know a lot of the people that beat me down weren't really, didn't never really want to see me get clean. When I did get clean and I did change my life, they were never there beside, beside me. None of them. And maybe you're one of them people today that you came in here and you're just weighed down because so many people have put layers and layers and layers of grave clothes back on top of you. And I remember when Jesus called Lazarus out the tomb, he raised Lazarus from the dead and he made the disciples go in there and he said, remove the grave clothes from him. And that we as believers, that we as, as, as children of God, that when, when somebody is trying to break out of the, the, the life that has had them enslaved and they're trying to break out of the bondage that has been killing them and beating them down their whole life, that we're supposed to come and help them remove the grave clothes. Or maybe you came in here today and you just got all kinds of guilt and shame that you just can't get off of your shoulders and you just can't, you don't deserve to be a mother, you don't deserve to be a father to your children or you are a horrible wife or a horrible husband or whatever it is that you came into this place with that you're saying, man, I just do not deserve the love of God. You're right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody in this room deserves it. There's nothing that we can do to earn the love of God. God will never love you any more or any less tomorrow or the next day than he does right now in this moment. And when we really understand the love of God, when we really understand how much it cost him and that there was, there's nothing that he won't do to chase you down to really get your heart and we really understand that why, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we'll start to live different. We'll stop carrying weights that we were never meant to carry. And I can think like Paul. Paul says, he says, man, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor anything in this world will ever separate me from the love of God. That when you can truly understand that there is nothing that you can do that will ever separate you from the love of God, you'll start to live different. There's a man, I don't know, maybe y'all seen him on Facebook. His name is Mike Servin. And uh, he's a Hispanic guy. He, used to, he was a Hispanic gangbanger in Cali. And he went, his video went viral because he, he done, he's the one that always yelling, Jesus Christ, we love you, God. Y'all ever seen him? Some of y'all in the room, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like, Jesus Christ, we love you, God. His videos went viral, right? But he was asked to, to do a video on his testimony. And he started talking about how he got addicted to drugs at a very young age. Man, he had a really traumatic childhood and he would walk around and he would hear voices that he had these demonic voices that would not shut up in his ear. So he just kept trying to drown himself with different drugs, crystal meth, all kinds of crazy, like hardcore drugs. And, and, and he couldn't get these voices outside of his head. Right. And so he would hear they would tell him, kill yourself, Mike. Like they would say, kill yourself. God will never love you like all of these really demonic things. That, and, and he attempted suicide multiple different times. And he said one day he heard a voice that was different from the voices that he had been hearing, and he said, I love you, Mike. And so he said, who is that talking to me? It's like, it's me, God. I, I love you, Mike. It's me, Jesus. I love you, Mike. 
And he said he, he broke down because that voice overpowered the voices that were inside of his head. And he broke down and, and he gave his life to Jesus. And he said, man, I was, I was active in ministry. I was going to church, but I couldn't. I was telling everybody about the love of Jesus. And I was so hyped up about what Jesus was saying to me. He said, but then I would go back to my house and I would start smoking crystal meth. And he said, I just couldn't break free from this addiction. And he said, man, and finally one day I broke, I, I, I broke down and I was like, man, God, this is it. I'm not going to keep doing this to you. He said he, he could feel it grieving God's heart and his spirit. He said, I'm not going to keep doing this to you. I'm walking away from you. He's like, I don't deserve you. He's like, man, I'm just going to end my life. And he, he said he pulled out the meth pipe. And he was just crying tears just running down his face because it was killing him. Because once he knew Jesus, it didn't feel the same to get high anymore. He knew that he wasn't just he wasn't just using drugs or relapsing, but that he was literally walking away from who he was created to be every time he took a hit of that dope. And he said he was saying, God, I don't know why you love me, God. God, I'm, I, I don't deserve you. And he said he went to light up, light up the, the lighter. And then as soon as he struck the lighter, God said, even if you hit that meth pipe, I'm still going to love you, Mike. I'm still going to love you, Mike. And then he just kept hearing. He said, I'm still going to love you, Mike. And he said he broke down through the meth pipe and just hit the ground just crying. He said, that's where he got the, I love you, God. Like, that's where, that's where he learned. They just started saying, Jesus Christ, I love you, God. And, he, and it, it was the love of God that broke through. And he's been sober and saved ever since, man. And his passion and, and his love for God is just so contagious that everybody who hears it, they just start, everybody start posting, we love you, God. They spell it L-U-F, like, for real, like he just went viral. And so many people's lives are being changed. But it wasn't his works. It wasn't him straining to not use drugs that set him free. It wasn't anything that he earned that it was in the midst of him being stuck on this dope and choosing the dope over God and saying, God, I don't deserve your love. That when the love of God broke through and said, even if you hit that meth pipe, I'm still going to love you, Mike. That transformed and changed his life. And a lot of you ain't willing to receive God's love. A lot of you have been holding back from giving your heart to Jesus or even coming to a church. And maybe this is your first time stepping foot in the church building because you've been saying, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But I'm here to tell you, if the love of God can penetrate through your heart, then you'll be a transforming change forever. We'll never be a church that put layers and burdens in front of you. Never. It's the love of God that controls us and compels us. And I would just ask you tonight, open your heart and say, God, you know what? I, I, I sometimes think that you want me to be perfect, but tonight I want to let you do whatever you want to do in my heart. Open your heart to him. I promise you, you get one taste of that love, you'll never be the same. Anytime you go back to the world, it won't taste the same. It won't taste the same. And we'll start to feel different. Our spirits will start to grieve when we grieve his spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to overcome the things that we struggle with. But if we don't have true conviction from the Holy Spirit, then we're doing things in our own strength, trying to change by our own might. And we'll always fail at that. Always. Talked about it already. There's been wolves in sheep's clothing since the beginning of the church, false prophets with false motives. It's important that we try the word by the word. What I mean by that is you can't just take what I say and believe that to be a truth. 
that until you learn to get into this word and study it for yourself, then you can't then you can't just take what I say and believe it as truth. You have to try the word by the word. Right. And the Bible says that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Right. So study to show yourself approved. That until you actually read the Bible and you understand how loved you are and how accepted you are by God and how much it costs him for a relationship with you, until you know that, you'll never fully grasp it. You have to study to show yourself approved. And I remember we talked about true worshipers in our first sermon, I am the Messiah, and that the woman at the well and how she asked Jesus, she said, you know, why is it that you Jews worship on this mountain and we worship on that mountain? And she tried to basically switch the subject from Jesus wanting to deal with her sin problem. And he says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. And he says, the father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Can I say there's a form of worship that isn't pleasing to God? It's called lip service. It's when we talk about something, but we don't really believe it, right? Or, or, or we say something to God, but our lives look completely different from what we say. That when we say, God, you're so good and that you have the power to set us free and that, you know, we, we say these different things, but we actually live apart from what we say. That a true worship would actually be, God, I don't deserve your grace, but you're so merciful that only you can change me. And we start to cry out to God with that type of heart that that true worship is what actually brings change. That God is looking for people who are willing to be authentic and real about where they're at. Like David in the Psalms where he would cry out and he would say, God, I don't even think that you're here right now. God, I don't feel you. God, why are you allowing my enemies to come in here and devour my life? That by the time he would get done saying these type of things, he would break down and and just declare the goodness of God. Because it's the authentic heart that David was a man after God's own heart. And we have to be real with where we're at to actually experience God at the level we want to experience him at. We got to be real, man. We talked about it last night, last, last week, that he's the light of the world. And unless we, we, we shine light on the darkness that's inside of us, we'll never overcome the things that we struggle with. That's why you can go to AA and NA meetings and get into these 12-step programs and, and you learn to actually be real and talk about the things that you're struggling with and you'll find some freedom in your life, right? Because we have to be willing in, to be open. And I know you might have been in some churches and around some Christian people that you couldn't tell things like that that you were struggling with because they would use it against you, right? Because you can't tell everybody anything. But there's people that are willing to come into your life that you can tell them the worst thing that you've ever done. That will say, bro, is that it? Like, for real? Is that it? You know what I'm saying? That's all you did? <laughs> you want to know what I did? There's so many different things, man. It ain't working. Huh? Oh, <laughs> don't do that in the middle of my sermon chance. <laughs> Sound man talking to me. Where was I at? Oh, yeah, so, so Jesus is telling the, the, the Pharisees, talking about, you know, all of their false motives and how they, they're not qualified to be true shepherds because they don't have the heart of the Father and how they've been putting these burdens on people and how they're actually there to, to rob the people, right? They're there to rob the children of God. 
And so verses 6 through 10, he goes into more, more detail. And this is where we're going to find our next two I am statements, the gate of the sheep and the good shepherd. But we're going to focus on the first one of those two today. And, man, I'm telling you, I'm going to struggle to get through this whole sermon because there's so much I want to preach on. So the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 6 through 10, verse 6 says, Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and, and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. We're going to break that down. Into five, we're going to break that down into five different statements. Five different things that Jesus is saying when he says, I am the gate of the sheep, right? So the first one is going to be, I am the only gate. Verse 7, he said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. He didn't say that he is a gate. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. What he's saying is he's the only access to God, right? And so what he's saying is he's the only access to God. So there was two different types of sheep pens that were used in this time frame, uh, communal and a personal countryside sheep pen. So the one Jesus is referring to, it would be a personal sheep pen. And so if you look at the screen, I got a picture of it because I wanted you to actually see what he was talking about. So when he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. If you'll notice on the screen right here, so a personal sheep pen back in the day, it would have, it'd be stacked stone like that, or sometimes it would be stacked like wood and sticks in a circle. There was no gate. There was only one entrance, only one way in the sheep pen and one way out. So when he's saying anyone who doesn't enter through the gate, right, is a thief or a robber. Or whoever sneaks over the side is a thief or a robber. But if the gatekeeper lets him in, then that's the shepherd of the sheep. So what would happen is the shepherd would come and he would, he would lead the sheep into the sheep pen and he would literally, sometimes there would be like a, a, a block of wood that would run across like, like a six-by-six six post type thing all the way across the top of the stone. And the shepherd would literally sit in between the entrance. And he would sleep there at night, effectively becoming the gate for the sheep. He was the only way in and he was the only way out of the sheep. And so when we read, I am the gate of the sheep, we can think like something swinging on the hinges. Like, man, that don't make no sense. Like, what's he mean he's a gate? No, he's saying that he's literally like a true shepherd. He will be the person who comes in through this entrance and a true shepherd would literally sleep there at night to protect the sheep from wolves and from anybody who would be coming to steal one of the sheep or some of the sheep from the flock. And so when he's saying that I am the gate for the sheep, he's saying I'm the only access into the sheepfold, right? He's saying I'm the only access into the fold for the sheep. Unless we enter through him, we have no chance of getting in. So we see this all through the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 18 through 19 says, For through him we, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying, man, there's only one path, one faith, and one gate to the kingdom of heaven. Anything else about being able to go to any other type of, and all religions lead to the same path and all of that? No, he, he's the only access into the sheepfold, the only access to the Father. Secondly, 
second statement of what he's saying about being the gate. He's saying, I am the gate for all men. So verse 9, he says, those who come through me will be saved. So those being all who come through me will be saved. So this is a very inclusive scripture. So scripture is very clear that Jesus died for all and not just some. We got a lot of people who say, man, some are predestined for hell and some are predestined for that and all these different things. But no, Jesus died for all. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying that the love of Christ controls us and that one has died for all. So he died for all and not just some. And if you notice, it doesn't say that for all who feel worthy or all who feel perfect or all who are full of confidence that they receive salvation or, or that they just wholeheartedly are no. He's saying that Jesus Christ came and he died for all. That we have to open our hearts and receive that and accept him in. That he didn't just come for, for some of us, that he died for every single one of us. And every one of our family members and every one of our friends and everybody else out there, that he didn't just die for a certain group of people, but he came and he died for all. One of my favorite scriptures is Romans 5, 6. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Right? So while we were utterly helpless, while we were still sinners, sinners, Christ died for us. One of my points is the enemy will always point you to works. God will always point you to freedom that produces natural works. When the enemy can get you focused on trying to get it right in your own strength, right, you actually become enslaved to the law. But if we look into the, the perfect law of freedom, as, as the gospel, has, as Paul says it, that if we, we stare into the, to the law of freedom, the law of liberty, that we're, it literally sets us free. That when we look into the heart of Jesus and, and, and grow into his love, that it literally sets us free and produces natural works. Whenever you're straining to do something for God, probably ain't behind it. Right? Now, there is a time to crucify the flesh because we know better, because we know how we, we are, we've already overcome those things. We already know we have the strength. And there's times when God will give us a conviction, and that's the time that God is saying, man, I need you to give this to me. But when we're straining to get something right and we're trying to please God, we're trying to not please God, but we're trying to make ourselves right in his sight, we're already wrong. Third, my third statement, he's saying, I am the gate to freedom. Verse 9, the second part of verse 9 says, they will come and they will go freely. I love this part right here. I'm going to break this down because he's saying, they will come and they will go freely. So there's two parts to this statement. First, they will come. And second, that they will go. I'm going to break that down. So the first will be they will come. So we come into the sheepfold for protection, Right? 2 Samuel 22, 3 says, King, da King David writes, My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me in my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. One of my points is you better know where to run when all hell breaks loose in your life. 
We come into the sheepfold for protection. And if you think that you get saved and all hell ain't going to break loose in your life, then something's wrong. I'm going to tell you, this past week, I had two very traumatic things happen to me. I ain't going to talk about them right now because it'll take up too much time. But I had two very traumatic things happen to me. The difference is, is when all hell breaks loose in my life, I know where to go to. I have to come into the sheepfold and, and find protection from the one who can only protect me. Because if not, I'll start to take things into my own hands and try to protect myself in ways that I know I shouldn't have to protect myself anymore. I got to know where my strength is. I got to know where my source is, right? Watch this. While in the sheepfold, we not, only, not only do we find protection, but we also find community. Iron, sharp, iron sharpens iron. So as we go back into the sheepfold, not only do we find protection, but we find community. That's why it's important as a church that we are a people that are willing to accept people for where they're at and not judge people and actually be willing to walk alongside people when they struggle. That when our brother falls, we pick him up, right? There's people in this room that have confessed all kinds of stuff to me. But I don't judge them. I say, bro, you got this. If you got to call me a thousand times a day, call me. If it's two or three o'clock in the morning, I'll leave my phone off of silence so that you can call me and wake me up. Whatever it's going to take for you to stay sober or for you to break free from whatever you're doing, it's important that we have people that we can go to that will actually walk through this thing with us. Watch this. If he can isolate you, if he can separate you, he can eliminate you. Isolation is a killer. If he can separate you, from the flock, he can eliminate you. So our first reaction when all hell starts to break loose is what? Isolation. We want to we wanna withdraw from the flock. Things didn't go right this week. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm beat down. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to go to church, right? I don't need to go to, I, I, I should go, but I don't feel like going. And we start to allow our feelings to dictate our actions. And when our feelings are dictating our actions, we're on our way to walking all the way backwards. If he can isolate you, he can eliminate you. I had to look down for that one. <laughs> Isolation is a killer. We come into the sheepfold for rest, right? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I want you to ask yourself today, are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you beat down? Are you, you worn out yet? Are you tired of running in your own strength? Are you tired of trying to get it right by yourself? Are you beat down or are you worn out? You need to enter into his rest. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. They say, what's the point of having a king-sized bed when you can't get no rest? Right? And we get worn out because we chase the things of this world and we try to satisfy ourselves. And when in all reality, all we really need to do is enter into him. A lot of us have been ripping and running and hustling so long in our lives, we don't know how to rest. All we know is go. All we know is grind. And we separate ourselves from people. We start to get irritated and worn down and we start to, we don't want to hear people correct us or tell us that, man, bro, you, you're starting to act different. You're starting to talk different. I mean, like, I, I see some things that you might not see. We get offend, uh, offended and we completely withdraw from the flock when in our reality, people from the outside looking in can see the things that we can't see. And it's important for us to enter in for rest. 
The second part of that, remember we said that they will come and they will go freely. We go out for service. They will go. We go out for service. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, says then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am always with you, even to the end of age. So we come in to find rest and to find safety, but we go out for service. Right. So when he's saying that they will come and they will go freely, that we come into the sheepfold, that we come together and we gather with the flock, but we have to go out for service. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And make sure you teach these new disciples every command that I have given you. This is the huddle. This is where we gather together, right? This is the huddle. This is where we talk about what the mission that we need to do with God, that I can't do it by myself, that it's not my job to be the only person out there doing it. And I know there's some people in here who are doing it and some people who ain't are people who don't think that they can be used by God. But I'm here to tell you, God wants to use you right now where you are at. This is the place where we get we gather together and we talk about running the play. But when we leave and we go outside of them doors, it's time to run the play. Who was it? Yeah, Brian, BT. I said, man, we need to take some of these chairs out and put them to the side so that it looks fuller in the room. He said, nah, man, we don't need less chairs. We need more people in the seats, right? These seats ain't going to get full unless y'all are out there getting them. And then they need to go and get more people and be out there getting them and not just bringing them and, and, and putting them in the seats, but teaching them to go out and continue getting them and getting them. And it's a domino effect. I can't run the play by myself. My wife can't run the play by herself. The more this church grows, the less I'm going to be able to be out there running the plays that I used to run. That I'm going to have other things that I'm going to be needed to, to be dedicated to as a leader. Then I'm going to have to disciple and have a few people that I mentor that are reaching a, a, a bigger crowd, that are reaching a bigger crowd and a bigger crowd. It's necessary that as, as the kingdom of God grows, that we know that we have more people that are willing to say, man, you know what? What can I do? How can I reach somebody? How do I share my testimony? How do I talk about Jesus without being awkward? Right? And just walk up to random people and just start saying, you know, you know, the Bible says in Matthew 14, verse 6, you know, you, sh you really shouldn't smoke that cigarette. <laughs> you know, like that type of stuff is not going to work. Like we need to really start talking about this and saying, man, you know how you're going to reach people? Being authentic with who you are. Right. Just talking about what God is doing in your life. Right. How good God is. That even while you were still sinners and while you still weren't perfect, that God still chose to change your life. Right. That God still decided to restore your marriage even though you weren't faithful to your spouse, right? That she still loved you and stuck, stuck beside you even though you didn't deserve her because God was working on her heart. And that eventually led to you allowing him to work on your heart. That we talk about what God is doing in our life and that's what grabs people. That's why a lot of people are in this room today. 
because some people were willing to post on Facebook about what they were doing, right? Finally using social media for some good stuff, right? Like, people willing to say, man, like, we're at church. It's leading here, you know. Matter of fact, all y'all take pictures after the service and post it on social media. But no, man, for real, people seeing what God is doing in your life is contagious. You're watching everybody else win. You don't want to lose no more. Especially people who've been losing their whole life. And you're looking at them now and they're winning. We remove the excuses in people's lives. When they look at us and they say, man, I can't believe that that gangbanging junkie is pastoring the church, right? That the people that counted you out or the people that was using with you, right? But you was just a worse drug addict than them, right? <laughs> but you swear you was a drug dealer, but you had no money. In your, nah, but, but for real, Right? Like when people are looking at you and they're saying, man, ain't no way I'm going to let him win and I'm still losing, right? It's contagious in such a beautiful way. (laughs) Run the play, man. Run the play, man. I want to hear the stories, man. I want to hear about how God is using you. I want to hear about how you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. This wasn't comfortable for me. It, It still ain't comfortable for me. So we're here shaking, drinking my water bottle when I first started. You think this is comfortable for me? It's not. But this is what God called me to do. I don't have a choice. It'd be easier for me to sit in the seat and be fed the word of God by somebody else. No, man, I don't have a choice. I got to do what God called me to do. But I didn't start on a stage. The first time I witnessed to somebody was on the, on, the city, on the city bus downtown when I was sitting down about to go back to drug court. And I felt God say, get out and go and pray for them people. They need to hear something from me. And I was like, man, I'm not finna get out in front of them. It's a hundred people outside this bus station. You want me to get out? I didn't know what. And I was just, the bus was about to pull off. I was like, no, nah, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to get out because I knew I was going to go back and beat myself up all night if I didn't do what God was telling me to do. I couldn't even not pray before I go to bed without, without God really dealing with me, let alone not pray for somebody else. So I got outside the bus and I was like, man, I know this is going to sound weird. But, man, I was sitting on the bus, and God told me to come over here and pray for you. I don't know what you're going through, but God just wants you to know that he loves you, that he's taking care of your situation. And this woman just wept. She just broke down, and she was on her way to a a Christian program out in Kentucky, had to leave her kids because she wanted to get sober, and she was feeling so much condemnation and feeling like she wasn't worthy. And I said, man, God just wants you to know that he loves you so much and that he's completely taking control of your situation. She was worried about her kids and what was going on. But that one little word of me being willing to get off of that bus gave her the peace that she needed to get on the bus that she needed to go and handle the business that God was needing her to handle. And it started on a city bus, right? Chance, he's back there, man. The first person that ever got me to commit to ever speak in front of people asked me, will you come and do a song? Like, will you come perform this song with me? Man, you can ask Chance. I was so nervous, my eye was twitching the whole time. He put me on like the fourth verse of the song, never performed. He doing all his verses. I'm standing beside him still like, man, what am I supposed to do? I'm turning red. I can feel myself turning red, so I'm getting even redder. By the time my verse is coming out, I'm like, oh, man, I can't even get these words out. I started, I, I started rapping. My eyes started twitching. I had to close my eyes because he was just doing like that, twitching. It was the worst experience I ever had in my life. It was enough to make nobody ever stand in front of us. I, told, I, I was never supposed to have a microphone in my hand. I went home. I said, man, I don't know. But I like recording songs, but I ain't, I'm not supposed to have no microphone in my hand. Like, for real. 
but somebody who was, saying, who was willing to push me outside of my comfort zone and say, dude, I see something inside of you. You might not see it yourself. That It's not that you don't have it in you. It's that you're not willing to pull it out of you and, and, and get uncomfortable and do it anyways. Somebody who was willing to say, man, I need you to do this, and I knew if I committed to do it, I would do it. It was then that I really seen that I was called to preach the word of God. That in between my songs, when we would preach in between the verses, and after the songs, and we would preach a sermon, and we would lead people to the Lord, it was then that God was showing me that I was called to communicate the gospel. I didn't know full extent that I would be starting a church. That eventually came down the road, but it was me being willing to step outside of my comfort zone little by little that led me to where I'm at today. Fourth, he's saying, I am the gate to provision. The third part of verse 9 says, they will find good pastures. So what he's saying is Jesus is saying, I am everything, everything you need can be found in me. Reminds me of Matthew 6, chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. I actually got it on my bracelet. It says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Saying, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or what you're going to wear. It's like, man, the unbelievers, they worry, these thoughts consume them all day long. Don't worry about where your provision is going to come for. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else that you need will be added unto you. So the money that you're worried about not having for your bills, seek first the kingdom of God and you will get it. That is that simple that we don't have to worry about how we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, or, or what we're going to wear. That if we just seek first the kingdom of God, every other thing that you need in this life will be added unto you. That was one of the first scriptures that really penetrated my heart when I first got out of lockup because I was worried about everything. How am I going to get this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to? And it was dominating my, my thoughts. And it's so simple that if we would just seek first his kingdom, that if we seek his face, we don't have to seek his hand, that naturally everything that we ever need in life will be given to us. And it's so much more than just financial things that we need or physical things that we need. Not only is he provisioned physically, but he's provisioned spiritually. He provides us with peace. John 14, 27, he says, I am leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. He said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. There's a peace that can only come from God that surpasses all understanding, that the world, you'll never get it in having some kind of financial stability. The more money you have, the more Cars you have, the bigger house that you have. That's why I said that you could, you could be in a king-size bed and still not get no rest. Because if you don't have the peace of God on your life, and you only got a, a temporary peace that the world gives, when real life hits you, you'll crumble. That's why you can have all hell breaking loose in your life and people walking away from you, but have a peace that nobody can understand. Right? That's the true joy of the Lord. That you can't understand why you're not broken. 
You can't understand how you still believe that God is good when you're looking at a difficult situation that looks like it's falling apart and you can't understand it. But there's something inside of you that's just telling you that I got you and I'm going to take care of you. That's the peace of God. You can't get that in a truck. I spent $9,000 on my truck and the motor blew up. One even finished paying it off. I had peace when I got in the truck. I was like, this is the best truck that any man's got. I felt so big. I Whoa, my pipes. Every time I passed somebody, I thought I was doing it. The motor blew up on me, right? Took me a year to get the money to fix the motor. So I got the new motor. I'm like, man, yeah, now I feel really good because now I got a brand new motor in my truck. I had peace about my brand new motor, right? Get on the interstate on my way to church to serve the Lord. And the, and the mechanic did not connect the, uh, the transmission line right. It blew out. Completely burnt all the gears in my transmission. After I just paid $7,000 for a motor, guess what? A temporary piece was gone. I'd like to tell you I was super happy about it. I wasn't. I was mad. Right? Because this world can't give me a piece like that. But guess what, though? I had a transmission in the shop the next day, right? Because God had me. Because I was on my way to seeking his kingdom. I was on my way to church to, to usher, even though I had ministry outside of church, right? Even though I spent all night ministering to somebody who was broken and trying to break free from their drug addiction, God had me. All I had to do was seek first the kingdom of God, and he provided what I needed. Because then I start to look at things different and say, well, at least it broke this time when I had the money to fix it, right? And if I didn't have the money to fix it, then I'd be stressed. But at least God had blessed me to a point where I had the money to fix it when I needed it. It left me broke. I was about to get some rice and beans and some ramen noodles. But I had a new transmission put in my truck. Right? Because everything that we, that we rely on in this world to give us peace will fail us. But the peace of God in the midst of your storm will really sustain you. People won't understand that. What time is it? Ooh, I'm way past Okay, uh, not only does he provide us with peace, but he provides us with power. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Not only does he provide us with peace, but he provides us with power. When you're in relationship with Jesus, not only do you have a peace, but you have a power that you never had before. Because my circumstances didn't change. The difference was I had a power and a strength inside of me that was something that was outside of my own strength. People were still walking out of my life. The drugs were still being put in my face. But there was something inside of me that came from God and didn't come from myself. Self-control was something I didn't have. I didn't have the ability to walk away from things that looked pleasing to the eye. But I had a power that I never had before that came from God. Notice that he said he didn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity, right? So that thing that inside of you that's telling you not to go, that thing inside of you that's holding you back from giving God your all, that thing that, 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 that puts the fear and overrides your mind and your mentality, that isn't from God. God is saying, hey, I didn't give you that, that as my people and my children, you can't walk around in fear and, and being timid and shaken up. That he said, no, there's a power and a boldness that will come from the spirit that I've already given you. 
You just got to walk in it. Like I said, you can't let your feelings dictate your actions that when you say, I know this doesn't feel comfortable, but I'm stepping into it with all I got. God, I want to be used by you. There's a boldness that will rise up in you. And I believe right now in this season as we were singing a song and we say there's an army rising up. There's a boldness that is rising up in his children that are sitting in this room that we ain't scared and ashamed to get out there and tell people about what God is doing in our lives. There's been too many people that have been been ashamed to represent the gospel. The fake, religious, legalistic system is gone. He said the time is here. Matter of fact, it's now. When true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. There's a a boldness that God wants to give you if you're willing to be used by him. I see it. see it in these rooms. You can come over to my last last statement. My fifth statement, he's saying, I am the gate to life. Verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came so that we can have abundant life on earth. So everything we've been studying over the past four weeks has, is, is what leads us to abundant life. We talked about how he was the living water, that if we drink of him, that we will never have to thirst again, and that what we're really thirsty for is him. And that he's the bread of life, that if we eat of him, that he will satisfy the spiritual hunger inside of us. How he's the light of the world. We allow him to eliminate the darkness, bring life to our chaos. Now he's saying, I'm the gate for the sheep. We enter through him. We find belonging. We find freedom. We find protection. We find rest. We find everything that we need when we enter in through Jesus. That there's no other way that you're going to break free from what what you're struggling with. That you'll never be able to conquer the suicidal thoughts inside of your mind. That you'll never be able to stop sleeping around with this person or that person. That you'll never be able to stop chasing the things of this world until you enter into him. Saying no matter how far you think you are, how far you think you're gone, or how out of my reach you are, that I can penetrate through the darkness and reach you where you are. I can change your whole life, that I can give you your kids that you lost, that I can restore your relationship, that I can put a love and a passion inside of you that you never had before, but you have to enter through me. You can try to be successful in what you're struggling with, but if you don't enter into Jesus, you'll keep failing. One of my favorite quotes says, a man without a vision is a man without a future. And a man without a future will always Return to his past. A lot of us don't have vision in this room. We have no idea what God wants to do with us. We don't have vision for our marriages. We don't have vision for our finances. We don't have vision for our children. We have no idea how we want to lead our families or where we want to go or what we want to do because we ain't asking the right questions. But once you know that I'm called to something, that when I wanted to give up, When I was a single father and I was following God, but I had an eviction notice on my door because I got laid off, that I knew I couldn't give up because I knew what I was created to do. I couldn't go back to the world because I still had family members that were out there sticking needles in their arms. I couldn't give up because people already seen hope in me. That once you know what you were created for, 
You won't just be relapsing or going back to the infidelity or whatever it is that you're doing or that you won't just be doing that, but you'll be walking away from what you were created to do. Once you know that God said, I'm going to use you to preach the gospel. That there's going to be people that won't break free from their addiction unless you speak to them and tell them what I've done in your life. That kind of weight, I can't, I, can't, I can't walk away from something like that. There's greatness in this room. There's world changers in this room. And it starts where you're at. It doesn't start on this pulpit. It starts in your job place. It starts on the bus. It starts walking in the street in the grocery store. It starts with you be with, being, just being willing to hear somebody struggle and tell them about what God is already doing in your life. Some of your family members will never come to know God if you don't get it right. That's the type of weight you got to carry. That your brothers, your sisters, your moms, your dads, the people in your life that you see just won't break it free. Maybe God is waiting on you to change them. He's waiting on you to do something different. And until your life's different, until you're in love with Jesus and that's all you want, until you can't go without consuming the word of God and you can't go without being immersed in his presence and you can't help but tell people what Jesus is doing in your life, they never want what you have. Starts where you're at. Today, Jesus is offering eternal life to anyone willing to receive him. Peace, protection, rest, freedom from your bondage, whatever it is that you need from him today. Anyone who's willing to enter through him. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to this week's message from We Are Church. I trust that you are blessed and moved in a way that changes your life permanently and allows God to guide you towards your calling in Christ. If you want to make We Are Church your home church or feel moved to sow into We Are Church, we want to provide the means to do so. You can join or give online at weareministries.com, and you can also reach us on our social media platforms at We Are Church Nashville. God bless you. Have a great week.